Welcome to the AAP Board Review Series. This is an educational podcast series that covers high-yield topics in physical medicine and rehabilitation. My name is Dr. Rebecca Greenspan. I am a resident at MetroHealth Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And my name is Dr. Kimberly Fazio, and I am also a resident at MetroHealth Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. In this episode, we are covering intracerebral hemorrhages, subarachnoid hemorrhages, and arteriovenous malformation. The AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. All right, let's get moving. Case number one. A 63-year-old male with an unknown past medical history presents to the emergency department with his wife. She reports that he had a sudden onset of slurred speech and says the patient's not moving his right arm. She reported just earlier this morning he was complaining of a headache. Upon arrival, the patient's heart rate is 90 beats per minute. Blood pressure is 222 over 108. On an exam, the patient is slurring his words and has unintelligible speech. You also notice his eyes are deviating to the left. Per his wife, the patient has not followed with a primary care physician in several years. She thinks he was told his blood pressure was high many years ago, but she knows he does not take any medications daily. He does smoke one pack of cigarettes per day. Hey Becca, based on the information thus far, what are you thinking? With that information, I'm concerned about an acute stroke. As we know, strokes come in different flavors. You can have an ischemic stroke, which can be further classified as thrombotic, embolic, or lacunar, or a hemorrhagic stroke, such as intracerebral hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage. If I were a betting person, I'd put my money on him having an intracerebral hemorrhage. Yeah, that's interesting, especially considering hemorrhagic strokes make up only about 15% of all strokes. So what has you betting that it's hemorrhagic? That's a good point. They are way less common but I'm convinced that it's hemorrhagic because of his presentation with a key finding of a headache. He also has acute neurologic changes and the hypertensive emergency. His past medical history of tobacco use and what sounds like long-standing uncontrolled hypertension are even further convincing me that this is a hypertensive intracerebral hemorrhage. So true. The hypertension is definitely a key finding in this case. This patient's blood pressure is out of control. With your top differential diagnosis in mind, what do you suggest that the emergency room do now? Well, first, we always make sure our patient is stable and focus on those ABCs, which stand for airway, breathing, and circulation. As for the hypertensive emergency, the emergency department will often use IV labetalol or a nicardipine drip to have tight control on the blood pressure. Keep in mind that the goal systolic blood pressure in acute management of hemorrhagic stroke is less than 180, while it is less than 220 in an ischemic stroke. Next, I would want to get a STAT head CT without contrast. Can you explain why you would want the imaging without contrast? Of course. If we got a head CT with contrast, we would not be able to differentiate what is contrast and what is hemorrhage. This is because both blood and contrast will appear bright white on a CT. A non-contrast CT will ensure that if we do see an area of bright white, we know that we're dealing with a hemorrhage. Exactly. So you correctly ordered a STAT non-contrast head CT, and you aren't surprised to find a high-density white lesion in the left putamen. So, Becca, how do you feel about getting a STAT MRI now? Well, I guess we could, and if we did get one, what we would see is a hypo or iso-intense signal in the area of the bleed and a hyper-intense signal 
representing the surrounding edema. However, I don't really think that an MRI would give us any extra necessary information, and in fact, it could take up some valuable time that we need for acute management. Correct. That was a trick question, and you passed. So, back to our patient. If you recall, our patient presented with a headache and hemiparesis. As a note, other symptoms of intracerebral hemorrhage can also include loss of consciousness, vomiting, nuchal rigidity, and seizures can occur in about 10% of cases. Becca, can you correlate our patient's hemiparesis to the imaging findings? As we said previously, there's a lesion noted in the putamen, which by the way is the most common area in the brain for hemorrhagic strokes to occur. If we recall from neuroanatomy, the corticospinal tract runs through the internal capsule, which is adjacent to the putamen. Mass effect from the bleed in the putamen will compress the internal capsule, which results in contralateral hemiparesis. So what sort of different symptoms could you expect if a patient had an hemorrhage in the thalamus? The precise location of the bleed within the thalamus will determine the physiologic deficits that we see. Some deficits we might come across could be contralateral hemineglect, contralateral hemiplegia, or visual deficits. What about a hemorrhage in the cerebrum? Again, we have to focus on our neuroanatomy. A hemorrhage in the occipital lobe could lead to visual symptoms, such as homonymous hemianopsia. The parietal lobe houses the primary sensory cortex, so a hemorrhage there could lead to contralateral sensory deficits. The primary motor cortex is located in the frontal lobe, so a frontal lobe hemorrhage could lead to contralateral hemiplegia. How do we do, Kimberly? Any other locations we should be concerned about? Well done. We got most of them, but we still have a bit more to cover. A cerebellar hemorrhage often results in loss of consciousness, vomiting, vertigo, and ataxia. Primary brainstem hemorrhages most frequently occur in the pons, although they can extend to any area of the brainstem. A brainstem hemorrhage can result in severe disturbances of consciousness, pupillary abnormalities, respiratory and motor disturbances. Unfortunately, brainstem hemorrhagic strokes are often fatal. All right, Kimberly, time for case two. A 58-year-old male with past medical history of poorly controlled hypertension and tobacco use was helping his son move into a new house when he suddenly developed a severe headache and blurry vision. His son drove him to the emergency department. On exam, he says that he's having the worst headache of his life. He's also reporting nausea, and his son says that he vomited in the car on the way over. His vitals are significant for a blood pressure of 180 over 100. What imaging studies do you want to get? I'd like to get a stat head CT without contrast. Sounds great. We get a stat head CT and we see a hyperdense area in the basal cisterns. What are you concerned for? His presentation had me concerned for a subarachnoid hemorrhage and imaging seems to have confirmed my suspicions. Exactly. Kimberly, what are some causes of atraumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage? The two causes that come to mind are ruptured barianeurysms and arteriovenous malformations. Perfect. Can you tell us a little bit more about barianeurysms? For sure. A barianeurysm is a saccular aneurysm. 90 to 95% of saccular aneurysms occur in the anterior aspect of the circle of Willis. It is presumed that destruction of the internal elastic membrane, either from congenital defects or from hemodynamic forces, is the cause of saccular aneurysms. They are most commonly found at bifurcation sites. Becca, can you remind us at what bifurcation site do these aneurysms most commonly form? 
The most common site for an aneurysm to form is at the anterior communicating artery. So let's say that in the case of our patient, the etiology of his bleed turns out to have been from a Barry aneurysm. What about the patient's history that we discussed earlier could potentially point you towards this etiology? Good question. The patient's age, poorly controlled hypertension, and smoking history all can contribute to aneurysm formation. It is unclear in this case, but it is possible for these aneurysms to result from congenital defects that the patient was completely unaware of. Then, it also sounds like he was straining while lifting boxes, which can increase intravascular pressures leading to an aneurysm rupture resulting in his sudden onset of severe headache and other symptoms. Definitely. Okay, so let's examine our patient. He is alert and oriented. You note that his right eye is deviated laterally and he has ptosis, but otherwise cranial nerves 2 through 12 are intact. His strength and sensation is full throughout. Reflexes are 2+. plus. Babinski is downgoing, and Hoffman sign is negative bilaterally. He does exhibit some neck stiffness. Can you walk us through what we're seeing on this exam? Saccular aneurysms can compress adjacent structures, leading to a cranial nerve palsy. When an aneurysm is located at the bifurcation of the posterior cerebral artery and the posterior communicating artery, be aware of cranial nerve 3 palsy. Compression of the third cranial nerve can cause a patient to present with an ipsilateral down and out gaze, ptosis, and medriasis. Excellent. Next, you overhear the ED attending tell the neurosurgeon that the patient is classified as an H and H of two. What does that mean? So I have to be honest, when I hear H and H, I think hemoglobin and hematocrit. So I hope that is not the case for this patient. Yeah, then we'd have a whole different set of issues on our hands. The H&H in this case refers to the Hunt and Hess scale, which is used to grade non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. We use this scale as a predictor of survival. So the scale ranges from 1 to 5. A classification of 1 would be a patient that is asymptomatic with a mild headache and slight nuchal rigidity. The estimated survival rate in this patient would be 70%. An H&H of 2, as in our patient, has a moderate to severe headache, nuchal rigidity, no major neurologic deficit other than the cranial nerve palsy. This rating has an estimated 60% survival rate. Three would be a patient presenting with drowsiness or confusion, mild focal neurologic deficit, and for this, a 50% survival rate is expected. An H&H of four would be a patient presenting with stupor, moderate to severe hemiparesis. This carries a 20% survival rate. A 5 on the scale would be a patient presenting with coma and a cerebral posturing. An H&H of 5 has a 10% survival rate. Okay, so our patient is a grade 2 on the Hunt and Hess scale. How should we manage this patient? Well, just as in the first case, it is important to monitor airway, breathing, and circulation in this patient. Mortality during the first 24 hours of a ruptured bearing aneurysm is 25%. Our patient's symptoms are mild, but given the survival rate is 60% in an H and H of 2, he needs close neurologic and cardiac monitoring to ensure stability. Continued bleeding, cerebral edema, or cerebral vasospasms are all possible. I would admit this patient to a neuro ICU. This is the best location to ensure proper monitoring of both intracerebral pressure and cerebral perfusion pressure. I agree. After a hemorrhage, it is important to keep the cerebral perfusion pressure greater than 60 millimeters of mercury 
to ensure cerebral blood flow is adequate. We also want to keep intracerebral pressure less than 20 millimeters of mercury. This is always a bit of a challenge for me to wrap my head around, but if we keep in mind that cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean arterial pressure minus the intracerebral pressure, then it becomes a little bit more intuitive that lower intracerebral pressure is beneficial. Okay, so just to reiterate, we said that CPP, cerebral perfusion pressure, equals MAP, mean arterial pressure, minus ICP, intracerebral pressure. Yeah. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we got it, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. It's always important that these patients receive a calcium channel blocker. Becca, can you tell us why that is? Yeah, it's important for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage to receive a calcium channel blocker as this reduces the chance of cerebral ischemia from vasospasm. Typically, nimodipine will be given for 21 days. Hey Kimberly, just to round out the discussion, let's briefly discuss arteriovenous malformations. Sure thing. These are congenital masses of dilated vessels that form an abnormal communication between arterial and venous systems. Rupture of these lesions can be another etiology for hemorrhagic stroke. Hemorrhage is the initial presentation in 50% of AVM rupture cases, and the observed focal neurologic deficits will depend on the location of the bleed. The bleed may be parenchymal, subarachnoid, or interventricular. 30% of patients can present with seizures, so that's another important factor to look out for, and 20% will have headaches. Hey Kimberly, bonus question for you. What do you think is more likely to rupture, a larger or a smaller malformation? Hemorrhage is actually more common in smaller malformations. This is likely because a smaller malformation will have higher resistance and pressure within the lesion, while a larger lesion will have lower interior pressure. Therefore, with a larger lesion, there actually needs to be a downstream occlusion that increases the pressure in the vasculature enough to result in a hemorrhage. Nice job, taking us back to Physics 101. Can you tell us about the risk of hemorrhage when someone has an arteriovenous malformation? Sure thing. The overall lifetime risk of a hemorrhage is 40 to 50%. This breaks down to a 4% risk of bleed per year. If a patient does have a hemorrhage, the initial fatality rate is 10%, with an annual mortality rate of 1% per year. The re-bleeding rate is 6 to 8% during the first year post-hemorrhage. So Kimberly, if a patient is found to have an arteriovenous malformation, what do we try to do to prevent a hemorrhage? Treatment of arteriovenous malformations is actually advised in both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. Treatments can range from surgical excision to embolization to stereotactic procedures. Well, that wraps up the cases. We hope you learned a little bit about intracerebral hemorrhages here with us. Here are some high-yield takeaways. If you hear a patient say that they are experiencing the worst headache of their life, think subarachnoid hemorrhage. A STAT-CT head without contrast is the initial image of choice when evaluating stroke because it accurately identifies hemorrhage. The putamen is the most common location for a hypertensive intracerebral hemorrhage to occur. The anterior communicating artery is the most common area for saccular aneurysms to form. After having a hemorrhagic stroke, the risk of re-bleeding within one month is 30%. And we should probably briefly review ICP management. Recall that CPP, 
equals MAP minus ICP. The goal is to keep ICP less than 20 millimeters of mercury and CPP greater than 60 millimeters of mercury. And one last thing, we should probably do our due diligence and have a quick discussion about some factors that can influence intracerebral pressure. Let's go for it. So some factors that can increase intracerebral pressure are fever, hyperglycemia, hyponatremia, and seizures. These can all cause worsening cerebral edema, which in turn increases intracerebral pressure. Remember, we want to keep intracerebral pressure low, so it's important to target our medical management appropriately. Given the importance of maintaining a higher CPP, it is important to know ways in which to lower the ICP. Hyperventilation is the quickest way to lower the ICP, but this needs to be done carefully and is really only a short-term fix. Hyperosmolar therapy with mannitol improves brain swelling through diuresis and intravascular fluid shifts. Diuresis with furosemide or acetazolamide can also be used for the same purpose. Positioning is important. Patients should avoid lying flat, and the head of the bed should be elevated to at least 30 degrees. Lastly, hypothermia, fluid restriction, and if necessary, neurosurgical decompression can all be used to lower ICP. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. We would like to thank Dr. James Begley and Dr. Juliette Zakel at MetroHealth in Cleveland for their expertise in reviewing this podcast. See you all next time.